It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Uh, Well, on Thursdays, we've been walking through this little series called The Saga of Scripture, and uh, technically, uh, today is the last one of those. Uh, We've kind of been walking through these uh, 10 sessions, uh, starting with the king and, and the establishment of the kingdom, and the fact that we've rebelled against the kingdom, and has been walking through scripture, kind of in these big epics, if you will. Uh, we're, we're falling now down to the very end, uh, which is what I'm calling the return of the king. And so if you remember the last couple of sessions, uh, the king established the kingdom, and we rebelled against the kingdom, and, and ever since that point, the king has been in this aggressive, redemptive mode. He's go, going after his people He's choosing this man by the name of Abraham. He's gathering these people around him so that the world might know him through this group of people. And then the king himself actually comes. His name is Jesus uh, in the Gospels. He sends, uh, he gives this phenomenal mission to his people after he leaves. And we've been in the season of the mission of the king now for the last 2,000 years, which has been quite amazing. But there is coming a day, which I think is such a fun thought. There is coming a day when the king will return. His foot is going to step back upon um, the Mount of Olives. The mountain is going to split in half, which, by the way, is kind of a fun thought that uh, the Mount of Olives has a natural uh, earthquake line, a fault line down the middle of it, uh, which is kind of a fun thought if you realize that the moment Jesus steps upon it, my guess is that fault line is going to crack and split the Mount of Olives in half. But as the king returns, just as he ascended, as we were told in the book of Acts, we know that there is coming a day where he is going to return which is just a phenomenal thought. Uh, what I want to do uh, for this session is kind of give a variety of thoughts. Obviously, we could talk eschatology and all this end-time stuff, which we're not going to do uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, one, it is, a, it is a divisive issue uh, in the church today, and uh, not that I don't have an opinion on it, but it seems like what I've found is the moment we begin to focus primarily on the idea of eschatology, uh, we, we begin to shift, and our focus is not upon Jesus. It becomes upon timelines and symbols and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's not that those aren't important. They are important. But the reality is our focus is to be on Jesus, not so much on the, the practical details, if you will. Again, I'm not downplaying eschatology. I think it's really important, and it's significant, and you can study that out yourself. But what I want to focus on is the king himself and the fact that the king is returning. Uh, there's a doctrine in the church, and we often call it the doctrine of imminence, but it's, it is this idea that Jesus could return at any moment. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That two seconds from now, Jesus could return. The trump could sound, and Jesus could show up, which is, ah, just, ah. And you realize that as believers, we should be living as if he's going to return at any moment of, of any day. Now, again, depending on your eschatological eschatological, eschatological, what's the word, eschatology viewpoint, I'll just say it that way, (laughs) whatever it is, you you could have some suggestions of potentially when he might come. Uh, For example, if you ever studied the feasts, it's interesting that of the seven feasts recorded in the book of Leviticus, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the first four feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. But there are these three feasts in the fall that have yet to be fulfilled. And it's interesting when you look at the very first one, in fact, actually, if you look at all three of them, how I, uh, interesting it is that it's like, it's all about the second coming kind of stuff. 
So you could make a suggestion of like, well, if Jesus is going to return, it may be in the fall. And hey, there's some likelihood that makes sense to me at some level. But it's interesting that as believers, we are, we are called to live as if he could return at any moment. And again, it is that idea of imminence. What would happen if every morning we woke up and we bounded out of bed and the thought upon our mind was, oh, is today going to be the day? Do you realize that it's going to change how you live? It's going to change how you think. It's going to change how you interact with the world around us. Why? Because we have to remember that today could be the day. Now, we have been in this, it could be the day for 2,000 years. But it does seem, in fact, I think I could biblically prove this, we are closer now than we were 2,000 years ago. That does make sense. <laughs> so we are getting closer. But you realize that we, we should be ready at any moment. Now, when you come to Scripture, it's interesting when we're talking about the return of the, of the king, that Scripture tells us at least three specific things. Well, probably four. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.8 says that we are to long for his appearing, that there should be a longing in our heart for the return of Christ. Revelation 22.8 says that we are to be praying for his appearing. Romans 11.25 says that we are to be seeking to win souls uh, in, in, in the, uh, for, the, for the sake of the coming. Um, but I love, I love what Revelation 22.17 says. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You realize that the bride of Christ, the church, and the Spirit of God have for 2,000 years had this groaning and this prayer within them saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. That there's been a yearning in the heart of the Holy Spirit and in the church for 2,000 years. We need that yearning. It seems like in our generation today, we've gotten so distracted by all the entertainment and culture stuff that we forget that the king himself is coming. And we need to make ourselves ready as a bride adorns herself for her groom. I love what 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 says. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Isn't that encouraging? 1 John 3, 1 and 2 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, as it is, it is, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But get this. But we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You realize that when Christ comes, we are going to be changed, and we're going to become in a fullness like him. I just, oh, that's such an exciting thought. Because you realize as believers, our desires become like our king. Our desires become more and more like Jesus Christ. And he is shaping us in this process of sanctification. But there is coming a day when he comes. When the fullest realization of that is going to take place. Do you realize that even creation is groaning for this moment? That creation itself is just crying out for this expectation, this restoration, this redemption. Uh, Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, says, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
you realize that nature itself, all of creation, is waiting for the revealing of us. (laughs) That's such a cool idea. Uh, Paul goes on in Romans and says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So, just like creation is groaning, just like the Spirit of God is saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Is there a deep well, a desire within your heart for the coming of the King? Uh, if you have the book, or if you have your Bibles, uh, the book of Revelation would be a great place to turn to. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 is kind of the introduction for the entire book. Uh, John has a very unique writing style in all of John's writings. Uh, he always starts with this little introductory statement. And in the book of Revelation, it's the entire chapter 1. It's interesting that when you study eschatology and all that kind of stuff, uh, people obviously turn to Daniel, they turn to the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of great stuff in that. But it's fascinating to me that of all the books that I've read about end time stuff, people get so distracted with the end time stuff that they forget about the whole purpose of the book of Revelation. You realize that the book of Revelation is a revelation of one thing. You'll never guess what it is. Okay, you can guess. But it is a one revelation of Jesus. It is not the book of Revelations. It's a revelation. It's one singular revelation. And what John says in John chapter 1 is that everything I'm about to tell you is about one single thing. It's about one single person. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, isn't it interesting that the whole book of Revelation that we tend to usually get distracted with is about one single person. All the really weird stuff that shows up like in chapter 4 and onward, all of it has to focus on a revelation, the glory, the uplifting of Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting that the book of Revelation is the only book that has a promise attached to it that you will be blessed if you read it. That's such an interesting thought. Uh, It's interesting to me that I think there's 400 and something verses in the book of Revelation, and of the 400 and something verses in the book of Revelation, over 800 times there is a point back to the Old Testament. In other words, there's this There's this language, or there's imagery, or there's a symbol that is mentioned in the book of Revelation that you have to understand the Old Testament in order to understand what is being said in the book of Revelation. In other words, I think one of the reasons it is a blessed book is the fact that the only way you can properly understand the book of Revelation is you must have a great working knowledge of the Old Testament. In other words, you have to understand what God's been doing since the beginning of time so you can properly understand what he's doing at the end of time. Now, it's interesting if you have, if you have your Bibles, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, uh, gives that blessing. Revelation 1, 3 says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, it's interesting that when you look at the word read in that passage, blessed is he who reads, that word read is not what you think of when you think of read. Uh, I love to read, so every evening I pick up a book and I, I read. Oh. And I just flip in pages and I'm, I'm going through and I'm just, I'm just I'm flying through stuff. That's not this word. Uh, it's interesting that there's a word that, that can mean what we would think of in terms of reading. And, uh, and again, that's not this idea. 
Uh, this, this particular word, it's interesting, it's anagonosko. And if you ever spend any time with me, I, I often bring up this word, gnosko. Uh, there's a word, anaoida, uh, which is this idea of you're reading, but it's perception. It's just an understanding. I'm just trying to get in a mental understanding of whatever it is that I'm reading. But this word, anagonosko, is more of the idea that you're reading, but you're reading it to experience it. You're reading it to grab a hold of. You're reading it so it changes you. You're reading it so that it actually affects your day-to-day living and expression of life. So you realize the blessing is not for those who really read the book of Revelation. So, hey, I, I read it through once, and oh, where's my blessing? That's not this idea. This idea is I'm reading it, but why am I reading it? I'm reading it to ap- appertain or uh, uh, ascertain. That's the word. I was like, whoa, whatever the word is. I, I'm, I'm reading it so it actually changes my life. I'm reading it so I experience it. I'm reading it so that so I am I'm not the same person as I get into it. Hey, I'm, I'm not just reading it with my eyeballs. I'm reading it with my life. And the blessing comes not in merely looking at the words. The blessing comes in in the experience of getting to know what the revelation is all about, which is a person. His name is Jesus. So if you step back in this whole saga of Scripture thing, it's interesting that what you see in this whole flow, and it's highlighted, it comes to a climactic conclusion here in the book of Revelation, is that we have this king who establishes a kingdom, and he creates a people for himself. And this people reject and rebel against the king. And what does the king do? He doesn't just flick him into the abyss, burn, baby, burn. Right? What, what does the king do? The king aggressively goes after his people. He's going after and he's seeking to restore, to redeem, and bring those people back into relationship. You realize the king had no obligation to do that. In fact, the king could have condemned and judged and sent everybody into eternal hellfire. And we would have rightly deserved it. And yet this king in his overwhelming love went after his people. In fact, he didn't really just go after his people. He gathered all the peoples and brought them in and grafted them in so that they could become his children. What an amazing reality. And it is literally brought to fruition here in the book of Revelation. So what I want to do is, and this is going to be, I don't know how to do this very well, but I want to go through a whole series of climactic conclusions that come into the book of Revelation. It's interesting that when you study Scripture, there are only four chapters in all of Scripture that are not tainted by sin. Uh, In other words, when when you look at Scripture, all of Scripture has the undertone that we are people who are full of sin and we need redemption and life. But there are four chapters in Scripture where that is not true. You have Genesis chapters 1 and 2 where sin has not entered into the world because sin doesn't enter until chapter 3 in the rebellion. But then it's interesting when you turn to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, all things have been restored. The king has come. Uh, he has returned. And he's brought a fruition, a, a climatic conclusion to what his agenda was back in the garden. Now it's interesting, when you study the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, what you see that what God starts here in Genesis 1 and 2 comes to fulfillment here in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Does that make sense? In other words, it's like there's this thread that begins in Genesis and begins to weave itself all through Scripture and finally finds its fulfillment in Revel- at, the, at the end of Revelation. And so what I want to do is kind of give you a few of these parallels or some of these climactic conclusions because I want you to see the beauty of what God is doing. What he started in the garden, he's bringing to fruition in the kingdom, the city of God in the book of Revelation. 
Now, again, I'm going to read this whole list, and I'm not going to give you the references because that's going to take way too much time. Uh, but if you want to see the entire list with all the references, uh, I have this posted on my website uh, that you could just look at or download. Uh, so it's all at, uh, if you just want the link, it's deeperchristian.com forward slash 71. That's one of my old podcast episodes that I kind of walk through some of this. So if you just go to deeperchristian.com forward slash 71, uh, you can get all this. But just, just listen to this. It is so phenomenal to realize that what God began at the very beginning, he's bringing to conclusion at the very end. So in Genesis, God is in the very beginning. In fact, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. And isn't it interesting that in the book of Revelation, God himself, Jesus, his name is the beginning and the first. So we're told in, in Revelation in the very end, chapter 21-22, that here is Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we see that what, what was at the very beginning, God, is bringing everything into conclusion at the end. He hasn't left us alone, that he is smack dab in the middle of this. Uh, in Genesis, it's, it's interesting, it says, in the beginning, God, and then there's this Hebrew word that is not translated. And, it's, and the reason it's not translated is because we don't know how to translate it. It's just two letters. It's Aleph and Tav in the Hebrew. And interestingly, the Aleph and the Tav is the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like us saying A-Z, right? And so if you, if you were reading a book and it said, in the beginning, God, A-Z, created the heavens and the earth. That makes no sense. <laughs> so we don't translate it. But you realize how brilliant this is? That in the Hebrew scriptures, it says, in the beginning, Aleph, Tav, the A, the Z, or if you, in the Greek, it's the Alpha and the Omega created the heavens and the earth. And in the book of Revelation, we are told in Revelation 21 that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. I just think that's beautiful. Uh, in Genesis, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. In the book of Revelation, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth for the first has passed away. Uh, it's interesting that the language of Genesis 1-1 uh, and Revela Revelation 21-1 is nearly the same. So listen to this. Genesis 1-1 again says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But Revelation 21-1 says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So again, you have this parallel language going on. In Genesis, you have the Spirit of God hovering and moving over the face of the deep. In Revelation... The Spirit is now in the midst of the city crying out with the bride saying, come. So what began as a hovering over the earth is now finding a fulfillment in the city of God itself. In Genesis, we have the division of light and dark in the, in the in days of creation. In Revelation, we are told that there is no night. In fact, there is no darkness because and there is no need of a sun because God himself is that light. In Genesis, there is a division of land and sea. But in Revelation, we are told that there is no more sea. In Genesis, the sun, moon, and the stars were created to rule. But in Revelation, again, there's no need for the sun or the moon, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamb, and it, sorry, its lamp is the lamb, for he is a bright in the morning star. In Genesis, man was made to rule over the animals and to tend and to keep the garden. And in Revelation, we are told that man gets to serve and to rule. In Genesis, God creates man and places him in a prepared garden. In Revelation, what began as a garden has now grown up into a city, 
and man is in a prepared city. Does that make sense? In other words, God put man in a prepared garden. The garden has grown, if you will, and the garden has become a city, and now man is in a prepared city, uh, which we're told is the bride, the church. In Genesis, man is made in God's image. And in Revelation, man is in the midst of God's presence. In Genesis, the bridegroom Adam, we, we see this bridegroom Adam and his bride Eve. In Revelation, we have a bridegroom, his name is Jesus, and his bride, the church. Uh, in Genesis, the bride was formed out of and for her husband. And in Revelation, we are told in Revelation 21 too, that the bride is prepared and adorned for her husband. In Genesis, we have the, mar- uh, the, the marriage of the first Adam, and if you want to call it a marriage, it's the bringing together of Adam and Eve. Uh, but in Revelation, we have the marriage of the second Adam. His name is Jesus. In, in Genesis, God gives a command to multiply. And in Revelation, we find that multiplication has happened to the point that there are now many nations. Isn't that a neat thought? Uh, in Genesis, there's a river flowing out of Eden. But in Revelation, we have a river flowing out of God's throne. In Genesis, we have gold, bedellium, and an onyx stone. Uh, or some translations say it's gold, pearl, and precious stone. And it's interesting in the book of Revelation, we have gold, pearl, and a variety of precious stones that were used to create the streets, the gates, the foundations, and everything in the city. So are you beginning to see how there's, like, there's this beautiful fulfillment in the book of Revelation and what began in, in the book of Genesis? Uh, in Genesis, we have the tree of life in the midst of the garden. In Revelation, we have the tree of life on both sides of the river. In Genesis, uh, specifically uh, chapter 3, verse 8, we have God walking in the garden with men. And in other words, I know it's in chapter 3, which is the whole sin chapter, but it says that God would daily walk with, with man in the garden. In other words, even in chapter 1 and 2, prior to sin, right, here's God walking with, with humanity. Uh, but in Revelation, we have this idea that God is now fully dwelling with his people. He's not merely just showing up in the cool of the day to walk with humanity. He is dwelling in the midst of his people. In Genesis uh, it's interesting that the garden was accessible to the liar. Satan comes into the garden to tempt Eve. So this garden is open to a liar. But in Revelation 21, it says that the city is closed off to all liars. Liars cannot get in. I find that fascinating. Uh, in Genesis, man is given a command not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Revelation, man is called an overcomer, and he is a son or an heir. Now, if you take that whole idea of what begins in Genesis and finds its fulfillment in Revelation, if you extend it just even beyond chapters 1 and 2, and you, and you move into chapter 3, which is, again, the, the rebellion, the sin chapter, what, what starts as the downfall of humanity in chapter 3, again, finds restoration and redemption in the book of Revelation. Let me just give you a few of these. And again, you can get this whole list online if you want. Uh, in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, but in Revelation 21, 27, it's the end of all sin. In Genesis, the world is cursed because of sin. In Revelation, there's no more curse. In Genesis, man was going to experience death, and we're told in Revelation 21.4 that there is no more death. Genesis says that one of the curses of sin is going to be daily sorrow, and Revelation reminds us that there is going to be no more sorrow. Isn't that exciting? Uh, In Genesis, one of the uh, curses was thorns and thistles, and Revelation says there will be no more pain. Genesis tells us that by the sweat of our brow, we'll be doing our work. And Revelation reminds us that there'll be no more tears. Genesis says that we're to eat of the plants of the field. Revelation expands this and says there's 12 kinds of fruit to be partaken of. Genesis 
reminds us that God covered Adam and Eve with a garment of, sin, of, of skin, the sacrifice, after they sinned. And in Revelation, we're told that the bride is clothed with fine linen, white and pure. In Genesis, Satan is tempting and then opposing. In Revelation, he's, a, he's banished. Genesis says that the way of, to the tree of life is blocked. In Revelation, there's continual access to the tree of life. In Genesis 3, man is removed from the Garden of Eden. In Revelation, man is restored and invited to dwell in the city of God. In Genesis, we are banished from the Garden. Revelation reminds us that the gates of the city are never shut. There is free entry and access all the time. In Genesis, redemption is promised. In Revelation, redemption is accomplished. In Genesis, uh, the Redeemer is promised. In Revelation, the Redeemer, Jesus, is victorious and he reigns. In Genesis, the result of the fall is that there is evil continually. In Revelation, we're reminded that nothing that defiles or is evil will remain. In Genesis, there's a prophecy of the seed of the woman. In Revelation, the seed of the woman has become the root and the offspring of David. In Genesis, the cherubim guard the way to the tree of life. But in Revelation, the angels are inviting to see the bride who is made alive. And this is beautiful, that what began in Genesis finds fulfillment in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's interesting that when you look at the three pictures of the flesh or of sin in the book of Genesis, uh, we're introduced to Babylon. Babylon is created. Um, Sodom is first mentioned. And Egypt is first mentioned in the book of Genesis. And interestingly, in the book of Revelation, all three of those show up, but they're a picture of the flesh and of the sin, and they're all destroyed by the victor, the king himself, Jesus Christ. And then obviously there's some major themes that weave themselves all through scripture that start in Revelation, like the whole bridal language, the building language, life, the living water. All of that uh, begins in Genesis, weaves itself through scripture, and finds fulfillment in the book of Revelation, which I'd encourage you to study out at some point. So all that being said, what I want you to leave with is this idea that the king is returning. And it is an exciting moment. You realize most of us, it seems like, as a culture of Christianity, are walking around with these drab faces as if today's just a sour pushed kind of a day. It's just like, woe is me. But you realize that our king has already, has already won. He is victorious. The cross has already accomplished its work. Now, I recognize that it, it, you look around the world, it does not seem like Jesus is very victorious. There's an interesting parallel in the Old Testament where here is David. He's the true and rightful king. And he is anointed king, but there's another king who sits on the throne. His name is Saul. So David is anointed in hostile territory. This is actually treason for David to be anointed because there is a, there's another king. Do you know how David's mighty men lived? David's mighty men, the men who gathered around David, lived as if David truly was the king. It's interesting that that's a beautiful parallel for the time that we live in. You realize that Jesus is the true and rightful king. He is to sit upon the throne. He is the victor. And yet in our world today, you look around and you're just like, yeah, but there's another king who sits upon the throne. Yeah, darkness and, and all the evil, vile stuff. It's like that is what's ruling the world today. I know. But there is a true and rightful king. He has has he already been anointed. He is already victorious. He's already triumphed. The question then becomes, will we live like David's mighty men as if that is actually true today? Will we live in this hostile territory where it is deemed treason to live as if Jesus is truly the king? 
Would we live as his followers, as believers, as his bride? Would we live as if he is truly the true and rightful king sitting upon the throne? I've said this for years, but I want to live as if that is true. I want to live as if Jesus is the king, because he is. I want to live as if he is victorious, because he is. I want to live as if the cross is triumphant, because it is. I love this idea that here's Jesus, uh, trumpets are going to shout, and one day everyone, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, we do have a choice, because we can do it willingly now, or we'll be forced to later. And one brings life, and one's going to bring death. But wouldn't it be amazing if you lived your life now that when Jesus showed up, I don't know if this is even possible, but could you live your life now in such a way that when Jesus shows up, it's just like, it's not a surprise. I'm not saying the timing won't be a surprise. That, that's true. I understand. But it's like, I, I'm, I'm convinced that when, when Jesus shows up, there's going to be so many people in the world who are like, what? Are you serious? And they're going to be surprised as if, as, if they, as if this is like a brand new thought. Wouldn't it be amazing to live as if that's reality? And wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus, you know, the trumpet shouts and Jesus shows up? See, I want to be jumping up and down saying, yes, I told you, I knew it. And wouldn't it be amazing if it wasn't a surprise? Ha, I, I know that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. I know that. Uh, my prayer, though, for well over a decade now is, is Jesus, uh, you are my king. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. But you are also my best friend. And I, I if you want to know my, my deep heart, I, I, the moment I see Jesus in the physical, I want to get on my face and I want to worship and I want to, I, 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 I'm so excited for that. But before I do that, oh, before I even, before I get on my face, I, I have been praying for well over a decade, Jesus, you are my best friend. And when I see you, I do want to worship. I want to get on my face in humility. But I, I want to give you a bear hug first. And I can, I can imagine like the chariots of fire music in the background, but you know, he's going to be, he's going to be right there. I'm going to start running toward him. Pop, pop, pop. And he's going to be like, ah! And I don't know, I don't, not, again, I, I, don't, I have no idea, but I don't know if I actually will get to bear hug him first. But I have this weird inkling that Jesus is going to have like a little cheeky smile and be like, come here. And we're going to have this huge bear hug, and then I'll get on my face and worship. But you realize that I want to know Jesus like that right now. I don't want to just, I don't want to just serve him out of duty. I don't want to just worship him because I have to. I want to embrace him in intimacy and, and worship and love because, because he is the king of the universe. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, but he is my best friend. So here's the question. Can I live today in such a way where the reality of Scripture is the reality of my life, that when he shows up, I'm not surprised? What, could I live today as if he is victorious and triumphant over sin, death, and the grave? Because he is. The cross has triumphed. And instead of me living in the wallow or the shadows of sin, and of me saying, well, maybe one day I'll get, you know, I'll get across the Jordan kind of idea, what if I begin to live right now as if Jesus truly is the triumphant king? What if I lived right now if he really was my best friend? What if I lived right now as if what the realities of Scripture says, that he is the king sitting upon the throne, lifted up on high, victorious and triumphant, what if I live like that now, despite what all the world says around me? 
you realize we call those people Christians. Well, let's pray. Lord, your word is truly amazing to me. Lord, I love the fact that Scripture, it truly is a divine book. You cannot explain the Bible in human terms. It is absolutely impossible, even statistically improbable, that Scripture was put together the way it was if it was merely done through a human mind. Lord, this really is a supernatural book. There are threads that weave themselves through countless thousands of years, through countless authors that you were inspiring to write that can only be described by you were writing this book. Lord, what began in the book of Genesis, you were bringing to fulfillment. And Lord, we are smack dab in the middle of that time frame, that we are in the day and age, that yes, there is a king sitting upon the throne of this world, and, the king, and this king is ruling this world in the middle of darkness and pollution. But Lord, there is a higher king. There's a king that, is a, that has been anointed. There's a king that has already won. There's a king that has been triumphant. That is you. Lord, could we as believers live as if that is reality? Could we live like David's mighty men who in the middle of a treasonous environment live as if you are the king? Lord, even if the world puts us to death, could we live as if you are the rightful king? Because you are. Lord, could we get so tight with you in intimacy that that when you show up, we're not like, whoa, I would have never thought this. But that we're just, yeah, of course. Because we are expecting it. And Lord, with the spirit and the church, we as individuals cry out as well, come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, Lord, we, we ask that you would hasten the day that our faith would be made sight. Lord, we have a longing in our heart. Would you, would you only increase the burn within our, within, our, within our very being that cries forth that we are longing for the return of the king, not just in a spiritual sense, but in the physical. Lord, would you come and freshly rule this land? Would you bring a fullness of restoration, a fullness of redemption? And just as all of creation... creation is groaning and crying out for your return, for this longing for redemption. Lord, we too are longing for the fullness of redemption. Lord, would you do something fresh in our lives today? May we behold you. And may we live this day as if this could be the day when the king of the universe, the lover of our soul, may return as you step your foot back upon the Mount of Olives and crack that thing in half. Oh, Lord, hasten the day. We wait with expectancy and urgency and longing. We love you, Jesus. Let's give the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. 
We hope to see you someday soon, live and in person. Thanks for listening.